On this episode of the After the Timeout podcast, in partnership with Illinois Basketball Coaches Association, we are joined by Richard Carter, Division I assistant coach, CEO of Spotter EDU, and head coach of Zipma Basketball of the TBT. We talked to Coach Carter about the qualities of being a great assistant coach, working for a variety of head coaches, his experience as a TBT head coach, and future trends in the game. As always, thank you for listening to the After the Timeout podcast. So let's start as always with our opening tip coach uh, first. Thank you for joining us. But we want to just start kind of with your journey and background. When we were looking at your resume and places you've been, um, you've worked with a lot of uh, good pro, great, great programs, great coaches, um, done all kinds of different stuff. So kind of maybe where you came from, right? You started at the AAU and built your way up from there and kind of where, where you're at now and, and what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm originally from Grand Blanc, Michigan, which is right outside of Flint, obviously a basketball hotbed when I was growing up. The Flintstone, the team cleaves, all those guys. And then the Fab Five, obviously, was down at the University of Michigan. So fell in love with basketball that way. Um, I went to Michigan State for my undergrad, ended up being a GA there. I coached high school basketball and AAU basketball when I was there. And I'm going to Michigan State, being a GA. And then from there, I was at Fairfield with Ed Cooley, Western Michigan with Steve Hawkins, Missouri with Frank Haith. Xavier with Chris Mack and then DePaul with Dave Wado. And obviously, as I was doing that, I found a, founded a company called Spotter EDU, which is automated attendance for student athletes. And now I'm currently residing in Oswego, Illinois. I was going to say Michigan, Oswego, Illinois. Not Oswego, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one, though. There is an Oswego, Michigan. That's like- so, so, Coach, just for our listeners, if you just want to, before I get into the first question, just kind of talk about a little bit of what spotter edu kind of does for athletes so it's an automated attendance app so it runs in the background of student athletes phones and there's bluetooth devices in the locations they have classrooms and it looks for the unique signal of that bluetooth device only during their allotted class time so obviously it doesn't know where they're at if they're not there so it doesn't track them it simply monitors if they're in class or not and then sends real-time alerts to people associated with them if they're not there so instead of having a human being go in and check like classes like most universities pay for to have done this automates that process for them. Coach, I could have used that when I was doing my JUCO job at Harper. Let me tell you, holy cats. Yeah, it was, no, it's, it's, honestly, it's a great product. I went to, um, you went to many of classrooms too, John, back in the day. I'm, I'm just glad there was nothing checking if I was in classes. Oh, that's, that's also true. That is also. <laughs> so just to get into the, the, the first question, coach, we wanted to talk about, you know, as an assistant, you've been in it, you were an assistant for a long time to, to multiple head coaches. Kind of take us through, you know, Todd and I have, have been an assistant, obviously, we were both assistants for a long time. Take us through the, the idea of pitching ideas to a head coach as an assistant. You know, I remember when I was a collegiate assistant, and sometimes you would pitch an idea and you'd think like, this is the greatest idea ever. And they spend two seconds thinking about it. And they're like, no, we're going to do this instead. So kind of take us through that process of how you pitched ideas. But honestly, it was different for like different guys that I worked for. Like there were some guys that you had to like write it up on a piece of paper or like a diagram and leave it on their desk or on their chair. So then that could become their idea where there was other guys you could go in and you could know how to talk to them. Like, Hey, I think this, this, and this. And also to be fair, a lot of it depends on your role on the staff. Like I was very blessed in a sense of everywhere that I was at, like I was there as the basketball guy. Like I wasn't really there as the recruiter. Like, yeah, I recruited, but I was more known for like, he understands basketball 
he can organize basketball, whether it's offense or defense. So like my ideas were going to go a lot farther when it came to basketball than when it came to recruiting, you know, like, and other people that were on the staff, if they came with ideas of recruiting, we're going to trump mine. So I do think it depends on one, who you work for and knowing how they accept ideas. And then two, probably more importantly, what is your role on the staff? Like, cause you know, I shouldn't be pitching ideas about how the secretary should do her job. You know, like that wasn't my role, but don't worry. Like there's people that will try to do that as assistants. Uh, so I want to follow up to that a little bit. Um, I guess as you went along, analytics became more involved, right? Um, so was that something, and you could maybe be other coaches or people that were, were good at that. Was that something that, and it obviously probably depends on the coach too, but that became more involved in almost, I guess, proving your idea, right? Uh, having factual evidence for the idea, like, hey, you know, when we run this, we get this shot and these amount of things, you know, because that's, uh, I know uh, uh, Golden at Florida now, he's, he was really, he's really big on stuff like that, um, you know, and kind of proving your, your idea to the, the coach. What I found about analytics, and this is even running a company, analytics are really good for the final decision maker, unless he doesn't want to do your idea, then all of a sudden they don't believe in analytics. So it's just one of those things where, again, it's who you work for. I'm not big into analytics. I'm more on like feel, like just understanding the game and seeing what's working. You know, like I know like at Michigan State, we always track what plays we ran and how they were doing. And it was wild because like the other GA that I worked with there was doing it and no one would ever ask him. So we'd be tracking this information, but yet it really didn't matter. You know, it was like, so I think analytics are great for certain things. Um, I think analytics are probably better for scouting and things of that nature. I think in live real game action, I think they're tough to use. But yeah, as far as analytics go, I don't really know. They weren't huge when I was around. They were starting to come around. And we use them more, like I said, for like eh, scouting more than anything. Like what other teams run, what direction guys drive, so where they get shots from, stuff like that. So uh, I want to kind of talk about the the, the landscape of, of assistant coaching, right? First first part is kind of what makes, what makes a good assistant coach? Like some of the basic qualities. And then maybe talk about you know, uh, especially at the level you coach at, were there guys that had, you know, like specialties, like, hey, I, I got this, this is a defensive guy, or this is a blob guy, or, or this guy has this offense, whatever, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think the specialties really come into like positions, right? They work with bigs, they work with guards, you know, you have sometimes an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator. A lot of times, honestly, on most staffs, you have a recruiting coordinator, like the guy that's really great at recruiting, has a ton of relationships. So of course, there's specialties for sure. Um, my personal opinion, I think the thing that makes a great assistant coach is you have to have the ability to not agree with things, but walk out on the court and act like you do because the head coach, you know, like whatever he wants is what you have to preach. And like, you can't have any like chinks in the armor there because the kids will understand that and see that right away. So I think, you know, loyalty is probably the most important thing as an assistant coach, understanding who you're working for and then having the ability to keep things off their plate but yet knowing when you have to put the right things on their plate, you know, and like normally it's bad situations, you know, like, but as much as you can like put out fires before they happen to me, that makes a good assistant coach. And more than anything, just knowing your boss, you know, like knowing what kind of triggers them and good and bad and be able to help them fight through the tough days. Cause as everyone knows, there's a lot of tough days as a decision maker in anything, not just basketball or football or coaching, but life. So you just gotta be able to help that final decision maker through tough days. You know, I wanted to to follow up on that. And I think something you said, it, it you said it so simply, but I think it's important 
for some of our listeners to hear is knowing your boss. Kind of take our listeners through what you, I, I know what you mean by that. Yeah. And I think they do too, but kind of take us through that process of knowing your boss, studying your boss a little bit. So I'll, I can give a, a great example. Like Tom Izzo, obviously a phenomenal winner. You know, like he goes, all of his players have played in the final four up until whatever date, like, but it was like 15 years of them had all been to a final four, but it never failed. Like the thing that always would bring Tom Izzo to like dynasties down was his assistants. And they're all my good friends. So like, we've talked about this before. They would go out and they would try to recruit in the top 20. After they go to a final four, they try to get the top 20 players in the country. Right. And those guys don't play well for Tom Izzo. Tom Izzo teams are really good when they have guys from 30 to 200 in rankings is what I'm talking about. He has a really good job of bringing the best out of those type of guys. So like knowing your bosses, as much as you might want to get recognized as a great recruiter because you just won and you can take a top 20 kid in the country, well, that isn't going to be the best thing for that kid. And it sure as hell isn't going to be the best thing for your program. So like understanding who your boss is and where he does his best and who he works the best with is really important. But again, as an assistant, a lot of times you get recognized for recruiting. So you want to go out and get the highest rated guy that you can. And that's not the best for those situations. And that's not just Michigan State. Like you see it happen all the time. Like a program that hasn't been to a final four will go to a final four. Jay Wright, it happened at Villanova. They go to a final four before Ryan Archidiaco and all those guys, they went out and got this great class and he almost got fired because of it. And then he went back to his roots and recruited the guys that he could win with. And he never wavered from that the next 10 years or 12 years, however many it was. So that, that's what I mean by knowing your boss. And it's not just recruiting. Honestly, like Steve Hawkins at Western Michigan, he could not stand when people snapped their gum. Like it would drive him crazy, like crazy. So you could be on a bus and you're doing a seven hour bus ride to Buffalo and a kid in the back would be snapping his gum. Well, a good assistant coach knows to go back there and tell that kid to stop. You know, like, or you can be on a plane and like nonsense, like, but you just have to know your boss and what triggers them. Because again, if they're having a terrible day, that is going to trickle down to everyone else. And it could be as simple as what you eat for pregame meal, where you stay at for a hotel, or like how a scouting report's delivered. Like the dumbest thing can trigger those guys. So just knowing them and trying to keep them in their best frame of mind. Because again, I didn't know this when I was an assistant. I do now that I've ran a company. The amount of things that final decision makers have going through their head, it's overwhelming, you know, like, and it comes from every angle. And normally the people that are coming to you with ideas, it's what's best for them, not what's best for the program. Whereas a final decision maker, you got to think about, wait a minute, this is going to impact everyone. And this one person might be better off for it, but the other 14 aren't. So I have to say no. So just a lot of things are going through their mind. So helping them like be as even keel as possible to me is important. You know, it's interesting. Before I move on to the next question, I'll make fun of myself a little bit. There was once a situation when I was hired as a head coach and one of my assistants, I gave him a job and I walked away and I came back and I'm like, you know, did you take care of that? And it was like 20 minutes later. And he goes, no. I said, well, don't worry. I already took care of it. So now anytime I hire an assistant coach, he goes, just so you know, if he asks you to do something, he wanted it done yesterday. So I always make fun of myself for that now. But honestly, like a good assistant coach, in my opinion, this is a big Tom Izzo thing is normally those kind of like most of those kind of things should be taken care of with him not even asking. Mm -hmm. You should know your job, your boss that well, where like a lot of things, okay, a new recruit side, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and it should be done right now. Mm -hmm. You know, normally when your boss is asking you to do something, it normally means you weren't thinking ahead. So I wanted to get into uh, 
your experience with the basketball tournament. Um, you know, I think it's such a new and popular uh, thing out there. You know, I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about, you know, the squad you coach, which I believe was the Xavier alumni. Yeah. Um, so if you just want to talk a little bit about your squad and your experience, you know, coaching in that league and, and kind of just take our listeners. We, we really haven't had somebody on that, you know, as, as was a head coach of one of the teams. So just a little bit about it. It's cool. Um, obviously, it's a year-round job because you're putting your, your roster together kind of over the course of the whole year. And you have a lot of guys that will back out at the last minute just because they're an NBA summer league or they sign a contract overseas. So, like, managing your roster is probably the, the hardest thing to do. Um, but it's a really cool experience, obviously, like just being able to be a head coach and then bringing guys back who played there. I mean, being the Xavier head coach is unique just in a sense. Every head coach – what was it to skip Prosser like was the assistant before so like it then went to Thad Mata it then went to Sean Miller it then went to Chris Mack it then went to Travis Steele so like there's this weird connection between overlapping like generations of Xavier guys whether it's terminology and stuff like that so that makes it a little bit easier um it's just really the hard thing about it is you get them for like five days before you put stuff in you try to keep it as simple as possible and then if you lose you're done you know like it was funny because we had a coaches meeting this year and everyone had all these great ideas, you know, we're like an hour in, I look at these guys and go, Hey, Hey guys, sounds great. But like, we don't have a program here, you know, like we have three days to put this stuff in and then they got to do it. So like, no, we're not going to be able to go zone to man or man. Is it like, you know, like we're going to be very basic and that's going to be the more basic we can be the better chance we have of winning. And then the real tough thing about it is building your bench. Um, if you talk to anyone who's in the TBT, they, they all say the same thing. The guys that really lose you the game are nine through 13 or nine through 11, whoever you have, how many, however many you have on your roster. And it's because they have a bad attitude. And normally you have all these guys that are pros in their own right. And they're really good on their own team. And then they have to come in and have a role. And, you know, for nine, 10, 11, that might be not playing one game. It might be playing the next game. And having those guys have like really good attitudes is really, really important. And if not, you're, you're screwed. Because like I said, if you lose, you're done and you really don't have time to deal with stuff like that, which you do, which is sad. I want to follow up a little bit about that too. You know, I know a lot of our listeners probably watch it. I know I watch it because it's like, oh, it's basketball in the summer. I got something. I watch WBA and WBA's on that. I can watch the TBT, right? But I'm, I'm wired a little bit differently. But, um, you know, we talk about some of, some of the players, right? I don't, I don't think people maybe realize, you know, because they're not always household names, how actually good some of these players are, they played in Europe, they've played overseas, they played where, wherever they've played, right? Got looks in the G League, NBA. Uh, so maybe talk to that aspect of how, you know, not necessarily on your roster, but just in general, how good some of these players really are. Yeah, I mean, there's former NBA players. It's, and it's, the thing about it is it's really European. Everyone's, you're playing like a European basketball team. You're not really playing like an NBA team. And that helps because like all those European teams run the same stuff. So you end up running like Spain action, which is a high pick and roll ball screen, back screen, and everyone runs that over there. Like, it's just, you end up doing little things like that. To me, the thing that was really unique, and I learned this the first year, I went into it and I knew the guys that I recruited or coached at Xavier really well. And I had these, there were certain things I thought about. Like, okay, he couldn't remember plays in college or he wasn't good at doing this. And like, when I got him back, I'm like, whoa, these guys are all pros now. Like, they've been not just battle tested. They haven't just put in their 10,000 hours. Like they've played a lot of basketball so they can pick up on things a little quicker and on the fly a lot better. So like the one thing that as a coach you can't do is you can't go in there and label them from who they were 
as college players or how they played because there is a reason they're making money either overseas in the NBA or in the G League now. And um, there's always someone like that's kind of the secret to winning. It's there's going to be someone on each team that's hot for that night. And when I mean hot, like they can go for 35, they can go for 40, like they're high level players and it could be a big, it could be a guard, but like having the ability to everyone understand that, get them the ball. That's the most, that's how you win. But that goes back to what you just kind of asked, how good are the players? Well, you got seven guys on a team and it could be any one of their nights that night. And then when I mean anyone, like they are terrific. They're not just good. Like they're terrific. All right. So I want to transition here to kind of player development. All right. So two part question here. Um, and then it kind of lead to some other questions down, down the road here, but um, how is, and maybe it hasn't, but how has player development changed, right? Kind of over your, your course uh, of coaching. And then um, second part is where do you think player development is, is going or where have you, where do you see it going right now? Um, well, I think where, where player development has changed is, is that obviously kids are starting to be developed at a lot younger age. So by the time you get them, whether they're in high school or to college, they're a lot more advanced than they were before. And I think just the biggest thing is just being able to shoot the ball, like be able to shoot the three. I think that's really changed the game because everyone on the court can do it. Um, I think being a former college coach, one of the worst things about player development was when you get a kid, they would have these, like, no, I'm, I can do this, this, and this. And, like, honestly, I, I work with Jaden Shoot. He's going to Duke. And like, one of the things that we started doing with him was we simplified his game his junior year. We took a lot of things out. Like, there was a whole bunch of things you didn't need to do. Well, he goes to Duke for six weeks, and he has a ton of success because, like, he doesn't have all this bullshit in his game. You know, it's simple. Because when you get to college or even the NBA, like, your game's really, really simple. It's not as, like, comp you're not doing 19 dribble moves to get somewhere on the court, you know? So where I think player development is poor is there's a lot of people out there that do a lot of dumb gimmick shit that doesn't work and puts a lot of bad stuff in people's game that they're only going to have to take it out when they get to college, which is, to be honest, going to make them probably transfer because they're not going to believe their college coach because they're being an asshole, which is really too bad. Um, where do I see player development going in the future? I just think the game is going to continue to evolve. Like I look at basketball as like war, you know, like if you look at the first form of warfare, it was hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? And then got into like a different form of like a gun. And then all of a sudden you want to shoot over people. So you had arrows and then you got airplanes, right? Well, that's kind of where we're at basketball right now. Like we're over people now. We're shooting from farther back, you know, and that's opening the whole game up. So I think anytime you find advantages in the game, that's going to be developed. And obviously now shooting is such a huge thing. It's like being a kicker. Like you could make the NFL by kicking. Like you can be an NBA basketball player if you can shoot the ball better than anyone else. Like that's a fact. Well, yeah, Jason Tucker just got like, uh, I don't know, 18, $20 million to, to make every, make every field goal. So I like that. I like that analogy. Well, just, you know, if you have a guy that you can put in the corner that can honestly shoot 50, 60% from the three point line, they can, they don't have to be able to guard. They can literally stand there and open up spacing so much and you can't leave them. So you're going to get wide open layups. So in, in that same vein, talking about player development, so you're, you're working with a player. Let, let, you know, we have lots of high school coaches that listen to our show. You're working with a high school kid maybe, your coach. What are the top – I'm going to guess what you're going to say shooting is one of them. But what are the top three skills that you feel a player needs to develop in 
you know, maybe to take that jump to the next level to play collegiate basketball? You got to be able to make layups. You got to be able to shoot the ball. And then you kind of like contact. Hmm. And like, okay. so, you know so I mean? let's, let's expand a little bit on the, the liking contact piece of that. So I think a couple of things, when you go to initially like drive the ball, right. You can either go through someone, you can go through someone's hip or you can go out around them. You know, like, I guess the other one would be understanding like the shortest distance between two places is a straight line. So the more you can take a straight line, the better. And that a lot of times is contact, right? So if I can drive through someone's hip with my shoulder or, you know, try to get as close to them as possible, that's going to help me a lot more than if I'm going out and around people. And just think about it in the sense of where help has to come from now too, right? If you go out and around them, help is a little closer to be able to get back to their guy, where if you go right through their hip, they have to take one more step open that opens up a shooter, you know, in the corner where they can't get back to them. All right. So coach, you are our, our first guest for our, our new segment. We're calling it halftime adjustments. Um, you know, we're not, we're not we're two X's and O's, but um, it's kind of halfway through our, our questions here. So little scenario for you. All right. You're, you're at halftime. You're down like 12. Um, top two guys have two fouls. Um, take us a little bit inside the coach's huddle. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of things, right. That can go into it, but just in general, what are you looking at? What are you, what are you talking about to kind of diagnose what's gone wrong and kind of how to, how to fix it uh, or, 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 you know, maybe prevent those guys from getting fouls, right? Um, whether it's something they're doing, something defensively, right? You know, I know there's a lot of things that go into it, but just kind of in general, take us into that, that meeting before you guys go in and talk to the players to kind of diagnose what's going on. Well, first and foremost, I'm going to say if they only have two fouls and we're going to the second half, I'm not going to be really worried at all. So we're going to act like they have three fouls, which is now obviously a problem. Um, what I would do is defend like me defensively. It depends if I'm switching or not switching. Like I believe in switching. So like I might do things like I might put them on their best players to start. So then when any kind of screening action happens, they're going to switch on to players that aren't as good. Right. Like just do different stuff like that. But again, it depends, you know, what kind of team are you playing against? You playing a dribble drive team or you playing someone that run flex where, you know, there's going to be a lot of like switches and things like that. Um, the other thing I might do is look at switching up my ball screen coverage. So like I might start icing ball screens or I might start trapping ball screens with the guys that have fouls because then they're not going to be in the rotation to pick up another one. You know, like I think a majority of fouls, I guess, are on the ball, but I think a lot of bad fouls come from people coming over and helping when they're not supposed to. So I would look at just kind of switching up what I'm doing defensively a little bit to try to hide them. But ironically enough, I might expose them more at the beginning of a shot clock to hide them later in a shot clock, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that makes absolute sense. Um, I wouldn't go to a zone though. Like if I'm a man, I'm a man to man guy, like you're not going to see my ass come out and play zone. To hide, like I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick to what I do. And hopefully my assistants have done a good enough job of developing our bench that if we can't play those guys, we got good enough players that can come in and play and be fine. You know, I, I think you actually said something important that I want to expand on before we move on. And, and you said, you know, do what you do. And, and I think that's important for a lot of new head coaches. And Todd and I have talked to so many coaches about this. There's so much stuff out there with Twitter and championship productions and coach tube. And there's so many different, you know, resources and sets and this and that you know, for coaches out there, kind of take us through the process of do what you do. Yeah. I think this will be my seventh year as a head coach. And I think, you know, 
after five years, I finally figured out do what you do, what that means, you know? So like what kind of take our, co- uh, you know, our, our coaches through, what do, you, what do you mean by do what you do? Cause I think that's a great point. So I think about. through the course of a, a season or even in a preseason, that's kind of like, you have to decide, you have to decide one, who you are. And more importantly, you have to decide what you're willing to give up, you know, cause you're not going to be able to stop everything, you know, like there has to be something that you're willing to give up. But along with that, you also have to understand that let's just say in the middle of a game, you decide to like totally scrap what you're like, just think about this like concept. I'm going to scrap what I'm doing. I'm going to try something I've never done before. Well, God, there's no chance you're going to have success. You know what I mean? Like you've never done it. You know, like there's a reason people have fire drills, right? Like they, they don't want there to be a fire in a house or in a building, but in case it happens, we're going to fall back and know, and we're going to have a plan because that's our best chance of survival. You know, and to me, that's what it kind of comes down to something that simple. Like our best chance of winning here is being more organized than that. Well, the only way we can be more organized than them, well, not the only way, the most likely is if we're doing what we know what we can do. And maybe it didn't work in the first half, right? Maybe we're down 15. Okay, well, where do we got to tighten it up? Well, normally the first thing comes down to what? Like, what does all organization come down to? Well, you're probably not talking because, you know, like if you talk, you can organize, you know, like, so to me, normally that's the first thing that it comes down to is like communication and learning kind of like what your terminology is going to be. That goes back to good assistance too, by the way, is like having terminology and everyone uses the same terminology, just like they do in the army, you know, like in warfare. So doing what you do is sticking to your guns, understanding what you believe in, and then holding kids accountable to that and not wavering from it. Cause as soon as you do, they're not going to believe in your message anymore. And to me, that's the biggest catastrophe. If you go away from like what you believe in, then how are, when you come back and try to do it again, why would they trust you? Well, and I think I, and I know Todd and I are both going to follow ups on this. I think it, it's a really good point. And I was talking to another coach and we were talking about if you can't explain what you do to not only what you do, but the counters to it and, you know, the, the different small aspects of it. As a coach, do you really understand what you're doing? And I think you made a great point that, that I want to expand on is, you know, if you don't believe in what you're doing, the kids aren't going to believe in what you're doing. So what are some ways as a coach you can really show you believe? Because I think this is a great point. But, and, and to go along with that, like your best coaches on your team are going to be your upperclassmen, right? So like if you have the same philosophy and you do what you do year after year, now, when they're doing a four-on-four breakdown drill and a coach is there, he's paying attention to something else, a senior can say, no, we do it this way. Or if they're playing open gym, like they're coaching when you're not there. Well, if you're changing all the time, how can they do that? Like they really can't, you know, like that's why to me, it's always, it's really hard. Normally, like when a first year head coach takes over any program, it's really hard for them to win. And the reason it's hard for them to win is everyone's a freshman, you know, like the seniors are fresh. Everything's brand new. Like no one knows, like from assistant coaches, seniors, juniors, sophomores, they're all freshmen. Everyone's learning together. Now in year two, you got a couple guys that are back that have learned their system. And it's honestly why the transfer portal is going to mess up college basketball is because you're not going to have those people in your program, your players that can coach your system just the same way that you can. The only way you can get that again, is if you know what you're doing, but you do the same thing over and over again. And ironically, it's what we ask them to do as players when they work out, right? We want them, oh, you're a shooter. Well, you got to get in 500 make jump shots a day. Well, they're doing what they do. So it's the same. That's how we're asking them to run their lives. Why wouldn't our program be the same? 
So I wanted to, I wanted to follow up on something. You mentioned the communication piece in the same language. And I personally think for coaches, that's one of the hardest things to, to teach and, and get across. Uh, and especially, the, you know, at high school, it's a little bit easier because you have in theory kids for four years, right? Um, but uh, but at, the, at the college level, like you said, you get a transfer and you get a freshman in, right? And you're constantly, constantly teaching that. So in, in terms of communication, obviously you mentioned same language, right? Um, but how are you encouraging and, and helping kids to get to that point where they can communicate at that level? Because a lot of programs they come from, that's just not a thing, right? Maybe they were the best player on their team. They didn't really have to communicate, right? It was, here's the rock, or, you know, you do what you do and, and go at it. So, so what are some of the things as coaching staff you can do to help them get that communication piece? So one of the things that we're always big on everywhere that I, I'm a huge communication guy. Like, I think it's the most important thing in basketball. Like, I believe in even Aaron on communication. Like, if it's in a game and some guy calls something out, and you hear them and it's not what we would normally want done, but you hear, you do it because you're in live action, right? Like you trust your teammate, you work on it. Like literally in every drill, when you're sitting there going over the drill with your staff, you are talking about what each guy is supposed to say. And it's, if they're not saying it loud enough, you know, you yell at them and make them say it louder. Like to me, we're, I mean, I learned this at Michigan state. Like if you went to a Michigan state practice, you would think it's an absolute zoo. You think it's a circus. You're like, what is going, it's, it is chaos from the managers yelling stuff to every assistant coach to coaches or to all the players. And like, people are like, how do you guys get anything done around here? Well, you're actually simulating the game. So to me, like teaching everyone how to communicate. So like the managers yelling about a loose ball, like yelling rebound every time a shot goes up, because all you really want is you want as much noise and energy in the gym as possible. So the guys on the court have to communicate instructions. So when you're in a state championship and it's sold out, they're used to talking above that level. Or if you're in the final four, if you're in any game, you know what I mean? Like you're used to be on the talk at a decibel level where your teammates can hear and they know your voice. So you work on it. Like you literally work on it just like you do free throws. And if people aren't doing it right, you yell at them and you make sure that they do. Like my biggest pet peeve, and it always has been, is going to a high school practice and the JV team does something different than the freshman team. And they both do something different than the varsity team. Never made any sense to me. I think it's the dumbest thing in the world. You know, and it'd be the same things like, okay, if I have my starting five and then my backup five, they do two different things and they have different communication. Well, no one would ever do that, right? So like organizing your program where terminology is the same across the board and everyone knows what blue means or everyone knows what ice means and everyone uses that terminology all the time. Like that will win you a close game more than any X and O, any diagram, any board like and more importantly, what it'll do when you're about to blow a team out, you'll wreck them because they'll just get overwhelmed with your communication. Yeah. There's no way to organize without communication. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think there's a psychological factor to it, too, with the team, uh, especially a team that maybe is a little bit lesser than you. Uh, they tend not to, to hang, around as, hang around as much. We played Villanova in the Big East Championship when I was at Xavier. And we get to Madison Square Garden about, I would say, two hours before the game. And our guys started walking out probably 15 minutes later. So an hour and 45 minutes before the game. Ryan Archidiakono and Josh Hart are on the court shooting with two managers. And every time they passed the ball, they yelled out the name to the coach that they were passing. The player yelled out ball. And then, like, it was just constant. And we, we lost the game before any fan entered the building. It was over. It was done. 
And it's just like, it's a way to bring people together and then push the outsiders away. And the one that I always find funny is it really doesn't even need to be, like a lot of people try to do like trickery stuff too. They try to come up with these weird turn. Literally, if you just tell people what you're doing, they'll fucking, the defense will mess it up. You know what I mean? Like if you yell, like switch, like switch, like it, it's okay. They, they should know what you're doing. You know, they like, don't try to hide it. Like let them know because then you're going to figure out what they're going to do. One of the, I was with, um, I do a little stuff with Tyler Hero, but before the TBT, I was out in Vegas for summer league and I was talking with Spolstra and Chris Quinn. And one of the things they do now, this was, I did this a little bit in the TBT and this was, it worked. It was kind of crazy. The offense, when they would go to set up ball screen, they would call out the opposite coverage. So if the team was like switching, the guy said the screen, stay, stay, stay. And then it would mess them up because they don't know. They're just used to hearing ball screen coverage. They have no idea who the one that is saying, or they're like, switch, 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 when they're used to staying. And then the guy would go switch, and the dude would be wide open, oh, which I thought was really interesting. That's like some chess and checker stuff right there. I like that. It was, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And it works. We did it. It works. So I wanted to get into, um, you know, the kind of the future of the game. We, we asked this to a, a few guests, you know, so just looking at some of the trends now in the game, whether they're analytical or not analytical, just some of the current trends, where do you think the game is going in the next five years? You know, eight years ago, nobody would have said uh, we would have been shooting threes to the rate we're going. So where do you think the game is kind of going within the next five years? Um, I would say that sooner or later, the NBA will have to kind of go back to letting the game be a little more physical, just because I think you have to. Like right now, they've kind of eliminated all physicality from the game. And it's kind of trickling down to every level. So hopefully they'll change that just because if not, people are just going to start shooting from farther and farther back. Like I don't really enjoy watching basketball right now just because you think about when we were growing, like we were younger, 10 years ago, you'd watch a college or NBA game and how many shot clock situations would you have? You'd have a ton, right? You don't have any now. Like literally like, you have no shot clock situations. Like you get in an NBA game, there's two passes and that ball's up. Like it's almost to a point where it doesn't even matter if you make them, like just being able to get the shot off and the threat of that then opens up the game everywhere else. So it's going to be interesting to see if like the evolution of the big man will come back. I don't know if it will. I think the space in the game is probably just going to get farther and farther away from the basket. Um, but I just think we're going to start seeing shots taken from just stupid ranges on the court and going in which will be scary. All right, so I want to kind of talk about, there's a big debate on Twitter probably over the, the summer here. There's always this, oh, these old school drills and these new school drills debate, like, you know, five on, oh, we can't do that. We got, you know, um, I kind of probably think I know where you're going to st stand on this, but um, I personally think there's value Right there, there's there's points both sides. There's value to it, right? Some of the things we did years ago weren't as effective, and now you can see it. But I, I think also some of those things are are also still effective if you use them in the right context. So kind of where do you fall? And then the old school, new school drill debate uh, when guys kind of get chirping at each other back back and forth. I think um, the biggest thing is knowing your audience and kind of evolving with that. So. Obviously, kids these days are a lot different than kids five years ago, especially 10 years ago. I mean, two years ago, to be fair. 
And I think just understanding how to relate to your group becomes really important. And from that sense, you might have to dabble in some new school stuff to get them to lock in and focus. But it's a give and take, right? Because if you do that, then you come back with something and now they trust you, they're going to do it. You know, I think the biggest thing that I think is going on in the game of basketball that we kind of have to figure a way to figure out, people just don't understand that, like, you have to build trust with people. No matter what, as long as they trust you, they'll do whatever drill that you want them to do. But a lot of times, like, you do have to give a little bit early on to get them to trust you. So that might mean doing a new school drill that you don't believe in, you know, but adapting to get them to, like, have faith and trust. So I wanted to get into a little bit of, um, you know, you've worked for so many great coaches. Todd and I do our homework on our guests and, you know, we, we were looking at just your resume and some of the places and coaches you've worked for and work with, um, you know, and just thinking about the, what makes a great, you know, a great coach, a top level coach. What, are, what did you see as some of those common threads between those people? They really, they, they, they genuinely care about their, their players, not just on the court and what they can produce for them, but off the court and like the people around them and their families, along with their staffs the same way. So like, it was always ironic that we would say family on three sometimes, and it really wasn't a family. Like people didn't really care other than less you could put the ball in the basket. And those guys normally don't win. So like having the ability to genuinely care. And a lot of times that takes a lot of personal sacrifice, right? Like it's less time with your own family. You know, it's learning about, you know, other people and their families and genuinely like caring about it and doing something about it. So I think that to me, like the, like that's Tom Izzo to a team. Like he's the best at it that I've ever been around. It's Ed Cooley to a team. Like that's why those guys win at such a high level. Like they sacrifice a lot of their personal life for the betterment of their group and genuinely care about those guys that they're coaching and that they're working with on a day-to-day -day basis. All right. So in that, that same vein then, uh, um, obviously that, that's going to be a, a common thread, but let's take it down to the high school level for a high school coach, right? Because that's a little bit different. What are some of the must skills have, must skill, have skills to be a successful high school coach? Why, why would that be different though? Because well, at the I, end of the day, like you actually probably have a little more time as a high school coach. You do. You do. You know, so but, like, again, like, but I think, I think your, maybe there's a little less the, the maturity factor and, and the communication and, and things like that might be might be a little bit different just because those kids maybe don't know how to write you know I, I think it's the same thing right that's that family is is a thread but is, is there some I guess I should ask is there some different skills that maybe a high school coach has to add on top of that to I just think if you want to be a successful coach at any level you have to be willing to give up like a lot of your personal life if you want to be great at it and I think with high school which is really hard is if you wanted to give up your personal life, especially also with seasons and other sports, like they're doing other things, that you wouldn't be a high school coach. You would want to be getting into college. So that to me is what makes it hard. But at the end of the day, at any level, like honestly, it's not even coaching or like basketball. Like if you want to be great at something, you normally have to sacrifice a lot for that. And normally that comes with personal, like your personal life. So I think whether it's coaching college or coaching high school or coaching anything, the more you can get to know and genuinely care about the people that you're throwing out in the battlefield for you, the much more likely you are to have success. And again, that could be in sales. That could really be in anything. Going back to the college coach thing, and this would also tie on two high school coaches, great coaches are extremely organized, but the thing that they know better than anything is their weaknesses. And they hire people to cover up those weaknesses. And they don't like 
they're not like they don't get jealous and like when that person gets credit for like they firmly understand where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and they don't try to overlap like if you're great at x's and o's don't go hire an assistant coach that's great at x's and o's that doesn't make sense because you're just going to conflict all the time right go hire a guy that's great at recruiting because he covers up one of your weaknesses and I think in high school, now, now we can start talking about like relationships. Well, maybe as a head coach, that isn't your job. Well, I got to make sure that I have two young assistants that played for me that can be close to the players and have a great relationship with them. So when they don't agree with me, they're there right now to kind of clean that up. Or I know about what's going on with their girlfriend and why he's in a bad mood that day, or he failed the math test, whatever. So it's like, again, knowing what your strengths are, knowing what your weaknesses are and hiring based on that and recruiting based on that as well. So as we get in, into our last two segments, uh, the first one we call 30 second timeout. Um, this is kind of your space, your, your rough 30 seconds, as we say, there's no refs in our huddle here um, to kind of talk about whatever you want. Uh, you can talk about yourself or your family or, you know, something you're passionate about. Doesn't even have to be basketball related. Lately, we've had a lot of coaches turn the tables on us and ask us a question um, during this time. So the, the floor is yours. You, you can kind of talk about whatever you'd like. I would just say the biggest thing for me, obviously I've talked about it quite a bit, is communication and relationships. And if people can do a better job on that, I think number one, the world in general will be a lot better place. Because I think obviously we have a lot of issues with that just overall right now. Um, but what I'd like to know from you guys is I'd like to know like, what, where do you think the game's going and what issues do you see with the game right now? Especially like at the high school level, because like, I admire high school coaches. Like I helped York Grove Christian out a little bit this year. And like, I actually was a substitute teacher for a little while. And I gained so much respect for high school teachers in general. And just learning like kids nowadays is just different. So like, where do you guys see like issues and like, what do you think can help solve them? Um, you know, I, I mean, I can start the, the one thing I, I, so my, my day job, um, I work in the schools as a mental health professional. Um, so I, I definitely think there, there is a growing greater need and focus on child mental health, teenage mental health. I think that's a major part of now what it takes to be a high school coach, a middle school coach or whatever coach, um, even, you know, into the college of life. I think mental health is going to play a greater role as we, as we move into you know, for whatever reason, there's a myriad of reasons we get, this could be a whole podcast, but just in talking about why students have more anxiety, why they have more mental health concerns, I think that is going to be a greater part of coaching. And I think that's going to be a greater part of, you know, making sure that the student athlete's mental health is in the right place. And, and I think it's really important for, for high school coaches to remember to check in with your kids, you know, practice is great. This is great, but remember, they have finals, they have boyfriends, they have girlfriends, they have friends, they have parents, they have teenage stresses that are so much bigger than basketball. So I, I, I think it's really important for high school coaches to sometimes just say to your kids, hey, how are you doing today? And you know what? Realize sometimes, I listen. I, and trust me, sometimes yeah. as coaches, we get into that mode where they're robot. Like we kind of think of them as robots, but you know, sometimes it's okay to just say, hey, for the last 20 minutes of practice today, we're just going to sit around and say, how's everybody doing? And it, some coaches might look at that as, well, you're not preparing them for the next game. You are, you're making sure they're not burned out. And I think that that's something important. So that's what I would say. Well, I think even picking back up that was, I think that's an unbelievable answer. And I get, it goes back to me like communicating. I, like I, that 
really important to me. But also, like, where I think it does help in a game is you're learning to, like, express your feelings. And every coach wants a coach or a player to be able to coach on the floor and tell a kid they're doing something wrong. Well, how are they going to be able to do that if they can't talk to one another? And they don't know, like, how this person's going to react if you say this. You know, like, you don't want that to happen in the middle of a game, you know? Like, you'd much rather do that in an environment like that. Or even someone saying, hey, like, I'm uncomfortable right now. Like, don't say that to me. You know, like, okay, cool. Like, we've learned that now. We won't say that anymore. You know, like, and I, and I think before I turn it over to Todd, you know, you made a, a great point about families and, you know, in my program, we talk about family too, and that's fine. But I think something important to say to your kids is sometimes brothers and sisters argue. It's okay to argue with your teammate. It's okay to have an argument, but then still get along and still like each other in that moment. You might not like each other. That's okay. That's what, a family's not supposed to, you know, I have sister, we fought, I have parents, we fought. It's okay to fight and still say, hey, we're still together here. So, sorry, Todd, I took a little bit of the, the floor. Good. I'm going to piggyback on John a little bit. First and foremost, I think we need to, and Coach, like you said, uh, in the education system, just in general, it's so stressful to, we got to get this done, 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 we got to get this done. That, that communication relationship piece has been lost because you know, you're getting pressure from up high from, you know, we have to get this and whatever it may be, especially at the high school level in the education system that it's hard for, you know, people to wrap around their head of, well, can we fit this in? Right. And then on the communication aspect, I, I think, um, especially after COVID, it just, it just changed, changed a lot and, and communication is different. It's more technological with kids. And I, I think, coaches and teachers have to find a way to, like you said, with the, the old school, new school debate, find the middle ground, right? Give a little bit to get, to get a little bit, right? Yeah. You, 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 you know, you have to get certain things done and, and there's, there's a way you know how to do it. But I think I mean, it's not always, always the best way, right? You have to adapt and, and change. And then I'll go a little bit basketball. If I personally think uh, it goes back to something you said, 19 dribbles. I think decision-making is kind of a lost skill um, with it, within the game, right? Knowing to make the correct pass. You mentioned, hey, I got on that out, outside hip. Well, what's my, what's my decision, right? Well, well, that helps there. Or I got, I got there, I need a kick. Instead of this guy's got me, I'm going to go up and try to throw up a uh, dipsy do shot against a, a you know a, a six foot three kid um and kind of going back to simple simplifying the game sure there's a time and a place maybe once every three games where you need that you're going to use that move but the decision making process i think that's something basketball wise we can we can improve on and, and sim simplify it simplify it a ton i think about this like what percentage of games do you lose when you have more assists than the other team Probably not many. Well, it's not, it's like really low. It's like 12%, like 10 to yeah. 12%. And it's like the fluke ones where they have 15 free throws and you have two. Yeah. You know, it's stuff like that. So it's a rare, but normally the team with the most assists wins. So like that, like their decision-making becomes such a huge point, you know? And then the ability to like, if a guy makes the wrong decision and now it goes back literally to what John just said for a team like, Hey man, I was open. You should pass me the ball. And they don't get mad and upset, you know? And like the next time they do it. So like it goes kind of back hand in hand. And that'd be the other thing I would go back to like, you asked about like 
player development, what I, and I kind of went on a rampage about how I think a lot of these guys are bad. Mm-hmm. Where I think they're really poor is they don't go to the games their kids play in and see the system that they're in and then tailor what they're going to do to that system. Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't need to go work on pick and roll offense if you run flex. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like you're not going to be in pick and roll. So we don't need to work on flex in a workout if you're going to be in all pick and roll. So like, Go, heaven forbid you call the high school coach and have a relationship with him. Like that would be like the worst thing ever. Or like an AAU coach, like heaven forbid you talk to a trainer and like try to, well, then you'd also have to have a plan yourself, which God knows half those guys don't. So like, it's wild to me. Like that to me is like a big pet peeve about training too, is when guys train the wrong way. So I just kind of went back on a tangent. I'm sorry. It's all, it's all good. All right. So now we're going to move to our quick hitters, kind of just rapid fire questions here. Some basketball, some just random. Uh, first one, the, the time when, when you were coaching, a player came out of nowhere that wasn't wasn't on a scout. Like, you know, the, we've all been there. The one where the head coach is looking down and like, guys, where where this guy where this guy come from? What's going on here? Yeah. So we we're, there was times like when I was in the MAC. It was normally like when I was at lower levels. At higher levels, it really I can't ever remember it like really like happening. I mean, obviously the most famous one, and I know Spike really well, was Spike Albrecht when he was at Michigan in versus Louisville and he had what, 20, what, however, 18, 20 points and a half. And like, he wasn't on the right. scouting report, but it'd be a situation like that. It'd be back when I was in the Mac and there was some guy that came off the bench and hit point. I don't, to be honest, I don't remember one. Um, I try to block as much as that negative, <laughs> negative energy out of my mind as possible. There you go. <laughs> All right. So we want to go into the, uh, it doesn't even have to be a disagreement with the ref. It could just be a, a weird or interesting story that had to deal with either an officiating call or a disagreement or a conversation or something with an official. That's a, just a funny or interesting story. When I was coaching AAU, I had Al Horford and Drew Knightsville, if you guys remember them. Al, obviously, everyone will know. And I was down in, uh, we were playing Sebastian Telfair down in Texas. And I used the Lord's name in vain. And the guy turned to me and he started to say something to me. And I said, no, no, there's a separation between church and state. And he teed me up so fast that it was insane. So that's one. Um, one of the things that when I lived in Cincinnati, when I was at Xavier, it was really weird. But I mean, when I say like, so it was like 50 or 60 college officials lived in that area. And I don't know why if it was the airport, but a lot of them just lived there and lived around. And this would be good for kind of every level of coaching. I was um, out at a bar and they were all, a lot of them were there and we were just talking. And I asked them, like, you got to tell them, like, you guys have to be biased, you know? And like, you got to like, and he goes, listen, I'll tell you the honest to God's truth. It's like in the heat of the moment, you don't know that you are. But when you go back and watch, like, yeah, there's a lot of times where if you treat us like jerks and it's a 50-50 call, it goes the other way. And literally from that point moving forward, and God knows that DePaul, we needed it a lot. I was only nice to officials. Like, I was never the bad guy. Like, yeah, I got a mortgage, man. I, you know, we need some calls here. Like, I'm going to get fired if we don't win. You know, and like, all right, yeah, yeah, this guy's a lunatic. I agree with you. But like, sugar goes so much farther than salt. And they're humans. They're going to make mistakes. You know what I'm saying? So I think anytime you can just treat a ref the right way and like a normal person, you're going to get a lot more out of them than you will if you treat them poorly. And trust me, you named Al Horford and Drew Neitzel. And you said, you know, you talked a little bit about people knowing Al Horford. I know Drew Neitzel. I became a Michigan State fan in 99, 2000 when they won the national championship with Cleves and Bell and Pete. Yeah. I know all about the lefty shooting Drew Neitzel. Yeah. So Drew's the first kid I worked with, actually. That's where okay. I started my player development was with Drew. He's like my he's like my little brother. I talk to him every day. Awesome. All right, next one here. A, a player that had like 
a really good, like unique, non-traditional skill that made him successful? So David Cool was the all-time leading scorer at Western Michigan, and he couldn't jump over a phone book. <laughs> but he had like really big hips, and he knew how to use them. Like whether it was going like perimeter to post and backing a guy down, and he just got fouled. Like he would shoot 18, 20 free throws in games. Like it was wild because he wasn't athletic. He wasn't fast, which actually helped him because literally like he couldn't get sped up, but he could really shoot it. And he just, he knew how to use his body. Like he knew how to draw contact. Yeah. He knew how to hit people. Like he liked contact, but he knew how to shoot from the three. But then if he got near the basket, he could turn and back you down and score. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. You know, you're so slow when you can't even get sped up. <laughs> that's, honestly, it's like deceleration. That's the new term for it. <laughs> All right, so you're on a you're on a long recruiting trip. What are you What are you drinking? What are you What are you? Am I driving or am I at the hotel afterwards and I'm out for a couple of weeks? Uh, this, this is Todd's question. Where am I going? Uh, you no, know, you're just you need a little pick me up. You're 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 dragging through the day. You're like in you know you know you got a 12 hour day at whatever gym. What do you What are you picking up? A lot of Red Bull. Uh, I do oh, a lot of Red Bull. Red Bull. We're going classic. Yeah. yeah, a lot of Red Bull. Like I'll do a flavored Red Bull, I guess, but like. Bet like five hour energy. If I have to dry, I would do those. Um, I say, like, say, it like it's drugs, but yeah, I would normally I drink a lot of coffee, even in the summer, like a lot of hot coffee. Like, go to a gym, you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you got driving another gym, you see a Dunkin' Donuts, you get another one, a ton of coffee. But if you need, yeah, probably Red Bull, I would go Red Bull, coffee and Red Bull. Uh, at Dunkin', if you got that coffee, it's probably cool enough to drink by like the third game, you know. Fat facts, that's a good point. Got to open up the lid as soon as you get it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. We're going to go with your favorite music genre or song, Coach. I'm a hip-hop guy. Yeah. So I like Jay-Z. I like Eminem. I'm a hip. I'm a 90s, 2000 hip-hop guy. This is my, my kind of music right there. Yep. All right. Last one here, Coach. Um, an underrated league or, or conference, uh, pro NCAA, wherever, some, somewhere that you've seen that's really, really underrated that maybe people should check out and watch. I'd say like professional basketball overseas is much better than people would probably think. I would say people should probably watch that a little bit more if they can. Um, but at Mac basketball is really good, whether it's the Mac out East or the Mac in the Midwest. Um, one of my really good friends just got the head coaching job at Western Michigan. And I was out there recruiting in July and I was with them just watching guys. And it became very clear that a couple other coaches in the league that were sitting around him that were also new didn't necessarily understand how good the Mac was. Like they were recruiting guys that you're not going to win in the Mac with, but because they came from high major programs, they really kind of dis disrespected the league. And it's like all division one basketball players, division two basketball players, they're normally pretty good. Like, I think the one thing that kind of separates them is like they might have a huge life, like maybe they can't go left or they, can, they may have one thing that they really can't do well, but they're normally pretty skilled. They can do a lot of stuff. So like I would say, yeah, the Macs, both East and West, both the Mac out East, the Mac and Midwest are good, good versions of basketball people should check out. All right. Before we close out the show, now I just want to know, you got a favorite Jay-Z song? So I – Run This Town's my favorite Jay-Z song. Okay. Um, but the only reason it is, and I love the song too, but it's literally every time we were on the road and I was in, a, I was coaching and they would play this song, we always won the road game. It was wild. Like okay. I'd hear them, like, oh, we're going to win. Like we're, we're winning this game. Like it was just weird how it would work. So that's the reason why. 
All right. I, I, I really, there's like six I like, but I do like Hard Knock Life only because I love the kids in the background. I just think that's a great mix. Um, all right. Well, Coach, I think we've now talked about every topic under the sun with you. So we really do appreciate you being on. This was a really fun episode. Uh, you know, we, we can't thank you enough for your time. And, and I think the listeners will really enjoy this. You know, anytime. I appreciate you guys having me. And I like listening to my rants, I guess. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Flicky. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more coaching content in-game, out of the game, and anything in between. Thank you.